Welcome to Adverse Reactions. I'm David Faulkner. And I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm a toxicologist and a risk assessor. What a coincidence. I too am a toxicologist. And on this show, we explore the stories behind the science. This is where we talk to toxicology experts from around the country and around the globe that use the field of toxicology to advance public health and also to protect the environment. In this episode, the United States of Toxicity. Why should the government, why should the American people fund me if I can't tell them what I'm doing and tell them why it's important what I do? Featuring Linda Birnbaum. As toxicologists, we've got to take our blinders off and look more holistically at what we do and, and at the world. We are really excited today to welcome Dr. Linda Birnbaum to the Adverse Reactions Podcast. For those of you who haven't heard of Linda, you're what I call a rock star celebrity toxicologist. You've spent 40 years as a federal scientist, and all the while, somehow you managed to find enough time to still publish a number of papers and be passionate about your research, linking real-world exposures to health effects, mostly adverse health effects. You also manage this double of being able to move up the leadership ladder at EPA, and finding scientists who can bridge both is somewhat of a unicorn. And the last 10 years of your career, you spent them directing the U.S. NIEHS, you were the first female, first board-certified toxicologist to do so. That's awesome for our field and my gender. David and I have talked a lot about what we think is interesting about you and about what we're trying to accomplish. So I am really interested in your career as a scientist and someone who has to balance these sort of political government spheres. You've got your integrity as a scientist, but then you also have obligations as a steward of these large programs. I'm really proud of the fact that I was a federal scientist for 40 years and was responsible only to the American people. That may sound very idealistic, but that is the way I feel. Was it always easy? No. Did I get myself in trouble? Yes. But as we heard with John Lewis, there's such a thing as good trouble. You wrote an article about perfluorinated compounds, and it was a commentary when you guest edited. I was co-editing a plus one volume, basically, right, right. looking at risk assessment and different issues that should be looked at there, including endocrine disruption. And some people got very upset. What surprised you the very most about this ensuing firestorm over your opinion? You know, it's interesting because the only firestorm I heard was from Congress who were incensed. Do you think that those congressmen didn't realize that science has been shaping policy for some time? Or was it on this particular subject? I, I think it was on the issue of environmental exposures and environmental chemicals. And we are have been in a time when environmental decisions are often not supported by the best science, or the science has been used selectively to make decisions if it's used at all. Now, I understand that there are times policy is made not taking science into account. That's certainly, there are times where that may be appropriate. Right. But in most cases, in my opinion, if you're talking about the issue of environmental exposures that may impact human health, we know a lot about some of those exposures. We know nothing about some others, but you know, we know now that air pollution 
is associated with increased morbidity and mortality. We know that there are early life effects associated, you know, with air pollution and stuff like that. We know that there are certain chemicals that, you know, if they're used entirely in a closed system, may be very useful, industrial chemicals. But if they're escaping into the environment, we know that these can have adverse effects. And that should be something that, in my mind, in my opinion, should be considered in policy decisions that would be made about them. Did you find people's reactions was a bit different than sort of the public posturing that happens a lot where folks in Congress are more amenable when you interact with them more one-on-one? I think there's a difference sometimes what people understand and what they'll agree with you on and then what comes out in a public setting where Mm. they're trying to maintain the support of their constituencies. You know, and I'm not talking about, you know, a hundred degree difference. People emphasize different things. and, And, you know, we all do that. And it's not inappropriate. If you're talking to other scientists, you talk in one language. If you're participating in a town hall meeting, you're using different language because you want people to understand what you're saying and where you're going. Even though you officially retired in October 2019, David and I have been doing some research and understand that you've not really disappeared from really anything that you'd love. You're very active in those things still. So what has been motivating you each day? I mean, I get motivated by many things. I would say probably for me, number one is the love of science and the love of learning. That kind of extends into the love of talking about what I've been doing and working with others to help get other people interested and excited and doing the science. And I think one thing that's also been motivating me is the ability to continue to make a difference. I feel that my career has made a difference in the way that certain kinds of chemicals and certain kinds of toxicities are looked at. There's lots more I want to do in that realm. So when you're at a cocktail party, how would you explain what you do and what you're passionate about in terms of the scientific content to someone who isn't necessarily a highly technical person? I would talk about, or I would say to people, well, I'm interested in how the environment impacts our health. You know, our health is more than just our genes. It's an interaction between our environment and our genes. And our environment is very complicated. It includes things like air pollution and water pollution and soil pollution. It it includes things that might be in our food. It includes infectious agents that we might encounter. It includes this lovely cocktail I'm having tonight virtually with you on the other end. (laughs) I think it's all that kinds of things and how it may impact us. And as a toxicologist, it's been important to me that we try to look at how exposures occur in the real world and also at levels of exposures that are relevant to the real world. I don't think we necessarily learn a lot from extremely high dose exposures. I think we have to use something relevant. And I guess one thing that gets me aggravated at times when I hear the term, well, those toxicology studies are all high dose toxicology studies. And what I want people to understand is, no, they're not all high dose. It's important for us to understand what is actually the dose inside or the concentration in the body and relate that to the kinds of exposures that we see in people. When you talk about real world exposure scenarios, you're talking about mixtures. And those add a level of complexity that is extraordinarily difficult. You know, for well over 30 years, probably 35 years, there's been lots of talk. If we wanna do mixture studies, do we do top down 
where you take a real world mixture or do you do bottom up where you make something? And the answer is, it depends the question you're, what are you actually trying to understand? I've done a lot of work in the past looking at dioxins and PCBs and the mixtures. And much of the work that I did was looking at binary mixtures. I take one dioxin and one PCB or one dioxin and one furan and mix them together. And I'd show that there was a common initiating mechanism of action and so on. And with the dioxin-like compounds, that led to work, which has kind of been blessed by WHO with the toxic equivalency approach, which is really just a relative potency approach. Mm -hmm. Now that kind of approach is also used for certain other complex mixtures. So PAH, there's an approach. PCBs, although we know that not all PCBs do the same thing, different congeners have different mechanisms, but the point is we tend to treat them and regulate them all as a group. Right. So again, you have to get to what's your question. I, I'm a pragmatist. I'll do something which is sensible and maybe improves our understanding, or if it was regulatory, is more health protective, even if it's not perfect. You yeah. know, I am a believer that you don't want the perfect to interfere with the good. I'll take the good, right. at least as a step going forward. So I think mixtures are very difficult. You know, we've begun to deal with mixtures of chemicals that either have a common mechanism of action or that target a specific apical effect. And we tend to do that with some kind of dose addition or concentration addition or relative potency approach. And I think that actually is a prudent measure to use. But then when you start saying, but wait a minute, we just don't have dioxins. We just don't have PCBs. We've got them with PAHs and we've got chromium around too. And maybe we've got chlorpyrifos and how do you deal with yeah. that? And the answer is we haven't really worked out how to approach that. We kind of think about a top-down approach for testing. And I think people are doing some of this with some of the rapid high throughput screening approaches where you can at least get some indications pretty quickly. But we're gonna to have to talk about, for example, if you wanna use drinking water, what's in your drinking water may not be the same thing as in my drinking water. So whose drinking water do you right. use as your mixture? And you're gonna to have to just make certain decisions that this is the model that we're gonna use. Right. And this will get us further in understanding the complexity rather than, than trying to make everything perfect. So I have a few different roles that I balance as a, a health and safety officer, as a researcher and so on, but you have many more <laughs> hats that you're wearing on any given day. Combine that with personal life. How do you find hours in the day to do all of these things? Do you just not sleep or? <laughs> I definitely sleep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not one That's of those good. people who can survive, say on four hours a night. Do you know, I can remember when I first started at NIEHS as a, a tenure track scientist in 1979, I would marvel at all these people who would go home with their briefcase full of papers. And I thought I go home and I've got to play with the kids, cook dinner, mm -hmm. give them their baths, mm -hmm. read them a story. By the time it got to be say 10 o'clock, I was four legs in the air, close. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be totally exhausted. It taught me to be very efficient. So I didn't do a lot of just visiting at work or coffee clutching or stuff like that. And I think that is something that I continued throughout my career. But I would say I also try to surround myself with really competent people and people who could help me get what we needed to get done. Nobody can do it all alone. No, it sounds like deciding how and when to delegate 
and having trust in your delegation capabilities. That, that is a mark of a good leader. You know, figure out who needs that extra help who can you push along or just check in with? I think in a number of leaders, especially in the scientific field, you know, you have the stereotypical bumbling scientists and that's not really who a lot of us are. I'd like to think that we are working more towards finding people and teaching them how to communicate if it isn't something that comes naturally to them. You're, you're talking about, are right, really asking about two different issues? One is leadership. Right. And one is communication, and they're both extremely important. So when we talk about leadership, there are different kinds of leadership, different kinds of leadership may be called for in different situations, but I believe leadership is not something that you're born with. I think it's something that you learn. Understanding that being a great bench scientist is not enough for many people. It wasn't enough yeah. for me. Getting that training, and again, leadership and management aren't the same thing, but understanding that and understanding different kinds of leadership and how you can empower others to be leaders, for example, and then communication. And I will tell you that I continue to believe that communication is one of the hardest things for many scientists mm -hmm. to do and is exceedingly important. I mean, I worked for the government. Why should the government, why should the American people fund me if I can't tell them what I'm doing and tell them why it's important what I do? And again, I think communication skills are something that are learned. And I would encourage everybody to make sure that they learn how to communicate. And isn't that the fundamental part of science is being able to have an educated discussion and be able to change your mind when you hear a valid point, or you can agree not to disagree, or you can say, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to come back to that. There's been so much criticism of scientists who've changed their mind about COVID. Oh, well, they right. used to think this. Well, that's science. That's what we do. We investigate, we publish, right. we read, we consider. We don't argue face to face and then move away. But this idea of using the platform of science to really demonstrate that opposing views really can be heard calmly and representatively and, and make a decision based upon good facts. So science is always evolving. Yeah. And I think that's something that the general population does not understand. So that what you knew at one point in time, you may in fact, as you get more information, may not be what you know later on. I totally agree with the fact that science, we have to be able to talk about it. And I think that goes along with the idea where you see the polarization. I used to, when I was at SOT said, we shouldn't only be talking about industry and government and academia. I said, we need to include advocacy as well, or community, citizen mm -hmm. groups and stuff, because yeah. they have a valid point of view. And part of our responsibility as scientists is to be educators. You know, I think a lot of times we fall short there. Just thinking about how we get at this problem of misinformation and what is the role of scientists in that? What is the role of government in that? That's a really hard question, David. You know, the, science, <laughs> the level of science literacy in our country is pretty horrific. Yeah. And I think that's been so obvious during the pandemic. You know, I am a believer in the value of education and the education starting earlier. I think there are so many people who get turned off anything about science when they're in grade school. And once you turn off a kid, forget it. Right. I think another 
point is people think that data is science, mm. but that isn't real science. Right. Data is what you use to to draw conclusions based upon what else you know. I think all too often someone will look at data and say, you know, the sky is blue and the other person will say, what do you mean? It's gray outside. And the point is, is they're looking, they're bringing something different to it. We have to try to come together rather than go apart to say, why did one of you say it was blue and the other one says, says it's gray? Right. And then, you, you know, and those are the discussions that have to be had. And that's really important when you start developing consensus in science. 30 years ago, I was testifying before a House of Representatives committee, and it was about dioxin. And I think I might have made the comment, dioxin is the most toxic man-made chemical or something like that. Or I said, the scientific consensus is that. And someone on the committee said, I've heard different viewpoints. You know, I've heard people who don't agree to that. And I said, according to Webster's, consensus is not 100%. It's a, yeah. it's a large majority. And I think that those are things that people don't always understand. But I do think bringing people together to try to understand why people draw different conclusions from much of the same data is an important thing to do. And I think that's true when you get beyond science as well. I love being able to call myself a toxicologist because in my head, it is this all-encompassing investigator, curious person of things that are adverse and pushing the dose and really thinking about society as a, as a whole. And you can have so many different specialties. I'd like to get your perception of kind of the state of toxicology and the role of toxicology as a science and a uh, translational science between different disciplines? I appreciate the question because I believe that toxicology requires a certain general and broad view. In other words, I think that it's helpful for me. I think my training really as a molecular biologist was very helpful for me because I could understand the molecular toxicology people were talking about. Well, I did a biochemistry postdoc, so I could understand some of the biochemical mm -hmm. stuff. Then I actually did another postdoc in pharmacology, you know, and that right. helped me understand some of that. And I think having that broad expertise is very helpful. Instead of talking about toxicology as the science of poisons, we talk about toxicology as the science of safety. Mm -hmm. Understanding when things mm -hmm. are safer, when they're healthier, when they're better. Now, you know, you can never prove negatives, right? But, you know, you can demonstrate when things appear to be safer. And I think that that is a approach to understand talking about tox as a science is really helpful. And what I try to stress with people is the important things you need to do is always say, what's the question you're asking? And then design an experiment or model you're gonna to use to address that question. And every model isn't gonna address every question, not appropriately. Whenever I'm asked to talk with a student, a graduate student, no matter what their field, they like chemistry, come be a toxicologist. You can do so much with it. You know, you really like uh, biochemistry, cool, come be a toxicology. There's always something that is applicable to our discipline, public safety, health, chemicals. So I look at toxicology as being a multidisciplinary field. And then I think as toxicologists, we need to be more multidisciplinary and interact 
with people outside of toxicology. So it always drives me crazy when people say, well, you know, those epidemiologists, well, you need to talk together. You need to understand. People say, oh, well, are we found that this chemical was toxic? And then they went out and looked. I can tell you that a lot of the chemicals that we've looked at are based upon what was observed in human observational studies and epidemiology studies. And that led us to look for other things in tox. And you wanna have these kinds of two-way streets. You wanna be talking to the exposure assessors. You wanna be talking to the biostatisticians, you know, and the data people. And you should certainly be talking to the chemists. But, you know, I think as toxicologists, we've gotta take our blinders off and look more holistically at what we do and and at the world. And you've talked about this in, in some of your work about expanding the concept of what an environmental exposure could be. And I think that that's really interesting in terms of reaching across disciplines. Do you know of any efforts to try to expand interdisciplinarity and and funding to try to encourage people to sort of reach across those lines? So at NIEHS, I can tell you, we did that. For example, all of our centers programs, and we had many different kinds of environmental health core centers. We had children's centers. Um, we had Superfund centers, they had to have a community engagement core Mm. because our communities often are very knowledgeable about what is going on in their community. And they have a different perspective of how you look at things and getting them involved, not to helicopter in and say, here comes a scientist and we're going to take samples from you and bye bye. You know, maybe we will or we won't come back and tell you, but to have community involved from the beginning is very important. And of course, many of the communities that have special needs would be communities that were disadvantaged or diverse in one way or another. And it was very important to involve them. I mean, look what we've seen during the pandemic, where some of our African-American communities and our Hispanic communities, and even some of our Asian communities are at increased risk. Now, some of that may be socioeconomic. Some of it may be related to dietary preferences that can vary. But, you know, now we know how important or we're beginning to give credence to how important our microbiomes are. And what you eat is very, very critical to your microbiome. And your microbiome not only talks to your immune system, but talks to your brain. So these are the kinds of things that I think we have to be trying to incorporate, or at least remember as we design some of our more experimental studies. And we need to be communicating our findings so that they can be involved in the kinds of questions that in epidemiology studies are being asked. Medical people will often say, well, you can't do a double-blind randomized controlled trial, or you haven't done it, so you can't prove that this exposure is associated. Well, I would challenge that because I do think we have the Bradford Hill considerations. You don't have to meet every consideration in order to support causation, but I think when you meet several of them, and then you have the animal data to support it, not surprising that some people would show effects. So thinking about the different ways your career could have gone, if you weren't a scientist and researcher, what would you have done or what would you be doing? I always loved history and I also loved archaeology, but I know me, I don't have a lot of patience. I like instant (laughs) or quick results. You know, when I ran an experiment, I loved it if there was a colorimetric reaction. (laughs) Oh, I know whether something was working Right. right away, but I don't know whether I would have had the patience to have, say, gone on a dig and sat there with a little paintbrush, mm-hmm. brushing aside the, the dirt and the dust of the, the ages. I, you know, I probably would have loved to have been 
a professor. I've had adjunct professorships and now I have a scholar in residency. So I've always had interactions with students and stuff. But, you know, when I got the job at NIEHS, in many ways, that was pseudo-academic without the hassle of having to apply for my own funds. Exactly. The opportunities that you've had to find creative ways to mentor people, whether it's through these adjunct professorships, whether it's walking down the hall of someone else's laboratory or communicating science in some other way has been really inspirational. It's a good model. Sometimes I think as scientists, we can be a little selfish with our time, but promoting other people, promoting women, promoting diversity really makes all of us stronger. And you have really demonstrated that by getting to the heights that you have in your career in terms of leading such challenging organizations. I will say that one thing I believe has helped me with all the mentoring is I'm very responsive to people. If somebody sends me a note or called me on the phone and wanted to talk, I would always make time. And if I couldn't do it then, I would always set up time. And, you know, I think being approachable is a very important trait for a senior scientist to have. That's very wise. And I hope the listenership will will take that to heart. It's been so great talking with you. I really enjoy all this discussion about public health topics and your career has been so important in the field of public health and it's inspiring. This has been a lot of fun today. Thank you so much for your time and helping us to see what the state of toxicology is. And clearly, I think David will agree, it's a lot better that you've decided to stay active in it. I'm having too much fun to totally go away. And thank you both Anne and David for some really great questions and interesting discussions. So that was our interview with Linda Birnbaum. I'm so glad that we had her kick off our first episode. Yeah, talk about a celebrity guest. And now we're ready for the tease. Next time. DNA isn't destiny. So what is? Featuring epigenetics expert, Dana Dolanoy of the University of Michigan. If our genome is the hardware, our epigenome is all the various different software programs that run the computer. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for adverse reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in adverse reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at adversereactionspodcast.com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. Hopefully at least half of you make it back for the next episode. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom. Anne's mom.